0: joined by Professor Glenn Lowry, the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences and Professor of Economics at Brown University. He has written extensively about race and inequality in the United States. Welcome to our show. I have been following you for many months. It all started when Adolf Reed beat no platformed from the DSA in Philadelphia and New York this spring over his article that he wrote for, I believe it was Common Dreams. I don't know if you followed this debate, but- uh, I did not, and who
1: are you speaking of again? Adol- oh, Adolf
0: Reed. Oh, Adolf Reed, Adolf Reed. Yes.
1: I, I didn't know he had been deplatformed. Oh, I guess I did catch wind of this somehow. Yes. He was raising questions about uh, whether to frame the inequality issues in, in terms of identity and race was, was the right thing to do. Am I well, correct? there
0: were two issues. Yes, it was that, it was about class. And uh, he, of course, makes the argument that classes where we need to be focused on the left and that race comes, becomes part of a larger, I'm paraphrasing here, but he does discuss racist essentialism. And also in terms of a, an alleged study, again, back at the beginning of COVID, there was a lot of media mechanisms in place on the pseudo-left, the neoliberal media, that was trying to make out that there was some kind of genetic link between being African-American and having higher rates of COVID with absolutely no discussion about socioeconomics, nothing. Not nothing. And he rightfully uh, pointed this out as problematic in the common dreams piece, he wrote. He was deplatformed and I was like alarmed because yes, yes. it seemed to signal to me a, a much larger problem of race essentialism that's been on the left for many years or again, when I say the left, we've got to put quotes around that because what left are we talking about? But the neoliberal CNN watching, maybe, you know, even further left of that left where people have been promoting the idea of racial essentialism. I still am very upset by some of the essentialism that I've seen in some of the Black Lives Matter media takes that entire ethos, if we can call it an ethos, also similarly raises alarms of race essentialism that concern me so when i came across your talks online and many dialogues you've had with other scholars i was very impressed because i was like finally we can talk uh, coherently about a, a problem or about a series of problems without oversimplifying everything because i think that's also happening and and okay. I was, you know, wondering, I mean, when you, you've you spoken a lot about in recent weeks about Daniel Patrick Moynihan's report of the Negro family, the, face, the case for national action and some of the problems that Moynihan faced back in the day when he was also called he was called a racist for pointing out certain problems uh, about single parent households to today where pointing out anything even on the basis of science or social science becomes almost this, this uh, dance of um, is the person brave enough to discuss this or do we shy away and pretend that nothing matters. You know it's almost as if speaking about social scientists today and other even scientists becomes a matter of um, being brave enough to fight the, the various labels that might come one's way even being called conservative. I'm sure you've been called conservative for things that, you said that might are in a rational of what is being said is simply a discussion. So everything's Indeed. been so politicized, Glenn. And one thing I really like is you speak truth to some of this nonsense, and we're living in a period of time where the left and right have shifted where I'm seeing the left coming up with these racialisms that I just can't make heads or tail of, and then at the same time, speaking about, let's say, single-parent households means that you must be a right-wing fanatic. How did we come to this today where we can't speak about social issues without first being afraid to be labeled something?
1: Yes, I, I agree with uh, everything that you've said, actually, Julian. Um, you, you raise a number of different points. So you invoke uh, Adolf Reed, whom I admire, have for a long time. I must say i I don't consider myself to be on the left I'm, I'm afraid i'm I'm too much of a neoliberal as an economist to <laughs> to to feel comfortable with that designation but i have but I have uh, great, great sympathy for the point that racial essentialism uh crowds out from a discussion of the inequality problems and in, and in, that involve uh, African Americans crowds out from that discussion a consideration of more fundamental dynamics. And so so race is in and of itself not the causal engine that's driving uh, the circumstances that one, uh, you know, food insecurity or homelessness or poverty or, or mass incarceration. The temptation to see race as the primary causal factor and then to invoke a Crusade of of anti-racism. This this uh, needs to be resisted, and uh, I would have sympathy for resisting it through a analytical lens that put much more emphasis on class positioning and uh, on economic uh, structures. So so I, I would say that. But but I I, I think there's a uh, and I have great sympathy for Adolf Reed as I say in part not only because he. Uh, uh, de- denounces this uh, uh, racial essentialism, but also because he he lays bare, I think, in his uh, work the extent to which an interesting kind of uh, class dynamic goes on within the advocacy uh, community on behalf of racial equality. There, there's a kind of careerism. There's a there is a you know an organizational and personal investment in a certain set of narratives, a certain set of tropes that uh, either rely on or are themselves embodying a kind of racial essentialism. Uh, the example about COVID, I think, is, uh, and you see where it takes you, The it starts with an uh, observation of the disparity of uh, the incidence of COVID morbidity and mortality. And it ends up in this headlong rush to be able to paint it as another, instance of white supremacy and of uh, anti-Black racism, it ends up embracing the very kind of biological essentialism that the uh, people on the right of the of the uh, far right of the political spectrum embrace. So, So that's one thing I want to say. I, I get a lot of um, value in my own thinking out of reading Rogers Brubaker, the sociologist at uh, UCLA. Um, uh, there's a book. Uh, Ethnicity without groups that I that I much admire, but the broader point about Baker is he he makes us aware of the of the choice that we make in racial framing, you know, in framing incidents in a particular uh, uh, sort of race uh, uh, heavy narrative, um, you know. So I, I mean, I could give many examples of this, but uh, I take the. Uh, the problem that really is the driving engine of Black Lives Matter, which is police uh, brutality and excess force against black civilians, I take that as a case in point because when one sees an uh, event a police officer shoots a civilian, uh, this is a problematic uh, thing if the officer is uh, doing so in excess of his uh, legitimate authority and so forth. This is something you should call, uh, that should be called to our attention. Uh, is it a racial Event. What makes it a racial event is the mere fact of the race of the police officer and the citizen uh, in in itself sufficient to cause us to construe the event as another manifestation of an age-old kind of American antipathy to black bodies and black lives and so forth and so on. And in fact, the uh, the, the the fact of the matter is, we needn't always so construe these events. And there are real reasons to worry about falling easily into the habit of seeing. Uh, the, the the treatise the 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 negative consequences of conflict uh in the maintenance of order in urban America seeing uh, those incidences uh entirely through a racial lens so I said that you invoke Moynihan, you put a lot on the table uh, and true enough, he was vilified, also not a man of the left. I think you would have to say Moynihan although true. he was a true. you know he's a democrat uh, but but uh uh the family the uh, the fact that there might be a cultural component, the uh, you know the, these are you know, there, there are many many unspeakable uh, many unspeakable things. So uh, the the pressure on people to avoid touching on these sensitive matters, the deplatforming that goes on, all this as you say is is a serious problem. And yes, it does have implications for the vocation of public intellectual practice. I mean, you do have to consider the consequences of taking up certain questions of being. You know, pointed of being honest, uh, brutally honest about uh, about matters when convention is pushing in the other direction. You will be labeled, et cetera.
0: My thoughts, though, are that we've been hyper-focused on race. As I mean, the heritage of the United States. One of the ways we were founded about slavery was my father broke our one hour a week rule of TV, and he insisted that we watch Roots. And so we were given this bizarre televised history, right? And all that that problematically represents, too. So Americans' version of, of slavery is Kunta Quinte, right? And Cecily Tyson,
1: and who else? I mean, it's Why are we talking about slavery? Here, here we are in the year two, 2020. Right. Uh, slavery in the United States uh, ended at the end of the Civil War. That was more than 150 years ago. Why are Absolutely. we talking about slavery? What's the relevance of? I mean, I I grant you, I grant you that uh, there is power in the historical narrative of uh, African Americans' uh, uh, dispossession, and then rising in protest and uh, and and uh, demonstration and demand uh, right. to you know the country's recognition of et cetera et cetera. Uh, i grant you that but slavery is not new in human experience uh, it is as horrible as it is it's it's horrible as it is it is well, very that, horrible it's not that, there's nothing it, new though. there's nothing new in conquest in in uh uh genocide and 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 these things are a part of history they they are a part of the human experience but the uh, thing that, that, that i that, strikes that me value. about let the, me just say this julian please, i just want to yeah. say this there's value in the success the story about the success of the abolition of slavery, at least within the United States. I grant you that it it still goes on uh, on the planet in in various forms. There's value in the uh, nobility of the rise of African-Americans from serfdom, because the Black population in the United States at the end of the Civil War were serfs. They they were peasants, uh, to uh, the condition of being the most prosperous and uh, powerful people of African descent on the planet. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's there's some nobility even in the story of the making of citizens that took place over this long, dark night of Jim Crow 100 years from the end of the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. But still, there's there's some remarkable uh, sense of success and accomplishment. and so on. So I don't know why we're still talking about slavery. Thank you for allowing me to say that, Julian. I, I want, no,
0: I no, wanna... no, no, this is great. A... I mean, I was raising this because when I came to the States, within the first year of my living in the States as a 10-year-old, was Roots. Then my entire education of, from media about what African-American participation in the United States was was pretty much bent on the oppression narrative which historically is true to that degree. Like you said, 150 years ago, and, and what about today? Or what about the great heritage since, even during Jim Crow? And we all know the positive history that exists, but somehow, yes. and this has happened in other communities as well, because I write a lot about the problems of gender identity, where narratives of identity become chained to a very negative oppression that may or may not exist or that has been refictionalized. And I'm wondering why, why is it that we are caught up in, you know, now the second, beginning of the third decade of the 21st century, and people are still rehashing an identity that's based on something that even if it's historically true, has very little resonance to the present. Now, I know Black Lives Matter, that ethos would disagree with what I'm saying, and saying that the the remnants of, of slavery are still with us today. I think that then would oversimplify the power of generations of time, of of um, familial developments, community development, and political change that has besought you know um, all of our societies, not just in the U.S., but if you look at Algerians in France or Senegalese in Belgium, etc. There's so many. There have been so many changes such that I wonder why our entire encapsulation of identity uh, for African-Americans somehow must harken back to the most oppressed, near history that we can come up with to the same thing when it comes to identities of other sorts. I'm very critical of gender identity because it seems to function purely on stereotypes. And I've been thinking about this because what we're seeing only because people want to have an identity or because people are unable to evoke some of the problems of, let's say, policing. And you've spoken a lot to many of the other cases of police violence where, aside from Tamir Rice, if a white person is killed by the police, that becomes almost ignored. So we have a sort of distortion by the media that wants to explode certain types of, let's say, police uh, violence or killings. uh, And then to posture this, As oppression, but when it's other sorts of actions that happen, other sorts of bodies, other values that are put into play, those are completely unrepresented. And uh, although we can speak of racist acts, or we can speak of sexist acts, I have to wonder how in 2020, an, an entire nation moved to legitimize certain types of violence, and then decry others the media representation of the riots themselves, of the protests. Depending on what channel you watch, you got a very different version of what was going on. You see?
1: Yeah, I do see. That's <laughs> You've said a lot once again. And uh, the last of it, I think, is very true. Uh, the depiction of the protests slash riots was politicized in the media where our players in the perpe- uh, per- uh, perpetuating of a, a particular uh, narrative, I, I think the selective, uh, uh, the selective outrage about uh, the extirpation of black lives that if done by an officer of the state becomes a, a, a cost celeb and a case for movement mobilization, but if occurring in the context of the, you know, sort of daily violence that characterizes life in some quarters of black America, then it, uh, even if children are the victims, it becomes unspeakable to 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 talk about it, and I think about the the suffering, the pathos, the pain, you know, the families for which these, uh, 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 where they're grieving the loss of these uh, uh, victims of uh, in uh, internal violence within the community and not perpetrated by the state, Um, and and I I don't know about how one should respond. I mean, maybe the. Political response maybe the appropriate political response is the petition for, you know, um, a more just society, a more social provision, a, a greater social democracy, and whatnot, and alleviation of the, of the uh, economic uh, marginalization of this population. But somehow I think there should also be a normative, a values, uh, kind of moral dimension to the how can we live like this. Uh, uh, what is the value of life if we take it in such a cavalier manner uh, among ourselves? Uh, what, what's wrong with our community that we we raise up adolescents who become uh, uh, so uh, contemptuous of the value of life? What does it say about us that we live this way? And so on. And perhaps that's not a political, that's a communal and some kind of almost spiritual dimension of reflection and and communication amongst the people of color amongst black people here in the United States not something that would be uh, the appropriate fare for speeches from politicians or um, edicts and of government and so on um, I don't know but I I'd want to say something else if I may Julia it's this is about slavery I mean I'm still on my my question about why are we talking why is it such a uh, you, you say that the young protesters now would object if you would have to the poo-poo slavery and if you were to focus on uh, other things. But uh, uh, why? And and I think so much has changed uh, in the last, oh, even in the last 50 years. I mean, the, the transformation of law and culture and politics here in the United States such that uh, racism is a completely, it's not all gone, but it's a completely discredited uh, you know, Barack Obama's presidency and so on. If you were to go back 50 years and look at the campaigns of George Wallace when he was, or something like that, you would, you would see, that. or even even uh, the Republican campaigns of Richard Nixon or Ronald Reagan, the, the use of racial Trumps. I mean, that kind of behavior, political behavior would be completely unacceptable. So there's been change in that. We've got immigration, tens of millions of new people, of uh, citizens, and uh, members of the American political community, have come from non-European points of origin in the 50 years since the civil rights movement. Globalization, the, the economic, you know, we talked the rise of China and the uh, uh, shrinking of the world in terms of communication and, and uh, the economic integration and whatnot. Deindustrialization, uh, technological, the, the uh, tech revolution, everything is different. The country is complete. These are the realities that uh, have to be uh, grappled with. The uh, evocation of slavery and the lapsing into this kind of romantic rhetoric, uh, where you generalize away from all the actual structural dynamics. I mean, you free flow from from history. Uh, so, yeah, I, I have not answered your question about why we are in this condition, but I just wanted to add my two cents in terms of. Describing. No, but I think
0: it's- Great. They even the frustration over it because I remember, you know, All Lives Matter a few years ago and I was like, Okay, I get what they're saying. I don't understand why they're picking on people who won't parrot this, who rightfully also say or, or Black Lives Matter, I'm sorry, who the yeah, people who yeah. come back with All Lives Matter and I'm yeah, like yeah, yeah. Okay, we're two sides of the same coin, right? Right. And I just sort of let that go. I didn't give it much credence at the time.
1: Because they're exacting a, a loyalty oath. They, what they want is obeisance. They're, they're asking you to affirm that you believe as they believe, that you see as they see. It's, it's a test.
0: Well, this is exactly how it's so parallel to the uh, transgender narrative, where if you're a woman and you don't say trans women are women, believe me, your inbox will be full of threats, <laughs> especially if you're a writer. And there's Public ideology in recent years has taken this turn that if you don't parrot the given agenda, you will be persona non grata very quickly. Your employer will be called up. You will be deplatformed from talks. Your editors will be contacted. You know, this is what's going on for uh, easily the last eight years. And I don't think it's a very useful political tool because really, if you want to get people on your, on your platform, I'd say threatening them isn't a great way to go about it, personally, or, you know, cajoling them into saying it, or else you'll call them a racist on, on major media. Um, but, you know, it, it does also make me laugh in a way, because I'm thinking, this is what racism is? I mean, this is not racism, not parroting Black Lives Matter. That's just not racism. That's an ideological difference. You know, we've seen at I agree. Philadelphia Fire, a really great book. I think it was written in the late 80s. You know, beautifully talks about what went on in Philadelphia and the the protests against the police and the attempt to bomb a block of the city, you know? Oh, I remember, I remember
1: that very well. I remember that, yes.
0: Yeah, I mean, in Watts, you've spoken about Watts. I saw you speak about that a few weeks ago. I mean, these are like serious, you know, this is, these were serious issues. This was where racism actually was at the core. A lot, a lot of um, well-to-do, not just Black, but also white Americans, middle-upper-class Americans have been pushing the Black Lives Matter agenda to the disgruntlement of many people who would like to be talking about class, poverty, right? And I'm wondering how we got to where the left in the states they they consider themselves the left, uh, are pushing for identity and words to be parroted rather than getting at some of the socioeconomic reforms that might be better suited over toppling statues, burning police buildings. Black Lives Matter is trying to push the idea that people are discriminated against because of the, the color of their skin, where a lot of the people who've created Black Lives Matter are very affluent African American women. Well, that's yes.
1: certainly true, and I was I was alluding to that a little bit in reference to Adolf Reed's, uh, putting his finger on the internal uh, kind of class structure of, the of the protest and advocacy uh, uh, community, uh, you know, movement dynamics where careers and uh, uh, cuts in, and I mean, you know, the uh, the the uh, leading uh, spokespeople, the pundits, the uh, people who write books, the uh, people who uh, give—you know—I could name names, but I don't want to make it personal. Uh, lectures on college campuses on behalf of the anti-racism crusade, and are paid twenty and thirty and fifty thousand dollars a pop. Uh, you know, you could you could go into that. Um, I mean, I, I'm I, in the police violence context of Black Lives Matter, the state violence, and whatnot. I'm struck by. The fact that you know 1,200 or so people are killed by police in the United States every year—most of them are white people. Uh, You know they—they are uh, in situations similar to the ones that have become uh, national uh, uh, causes. uh, uh, You can find for every uh, case of a George Floyd or uh, Eric Garner or Michael Brown or uh, whatever you can find. Cases where whites have met their end at the hands of police in very similar circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, the 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 trend I think in um, the uh, economic disparities, the the tr- the, the uh, literature on uh, discrimination in uh, wages and uh, housing and so forth, it continues to report that there are some. You know adverse effects, so differences that are not explained by other factors disadvantaging African Americans there's still some discrimination, but the magnitude of that uh, has gone has gone down substantially uh, I think if you talk about incarceration and overrepresentation of African Americans there again uh there are you know there's some indication of Discriminatory behavior disadvantaging blacks and prosecution of the war on drugs or sentencing behavior, but it doesn't account for uh, uh, the bulk of the of the disparity uh, in overrepresentation of blacks in prison. Is not mainly, in on my argument, I, on my my reading of the data, is not mainly a consequence of anti-black discrimination. Uh, again, I'm not I'm not sure I'm being responsive to your uh, question, Julie, and you wanted something no, no, about.
0: That. I was a if, few if, uh, research on issues of, of class and uh, police violence even, where, I mean, a lot of people are saying that the reason why George Floyd was killed, uh, Breonna Taylor was killed, was because they were black. When you look into the cases, however, there's another story to be told. And um, not that, you know, is there a litmus test for these officers, especially in some of the cases in the last two years, some of the officers have themselves been black and Hispanic, and, and Filipino, etc. So that's true. What What is the the bar here? Um, and, and and I don't
1: know of any case do you I wonder of a, of a um, highly educated uh, middle upper middle class African American uh, who was the victim of one of these police shooting situations. Um, I, <laughs> I don't know quite what to make of that. People uh, like me—I'm, you know—I have uh, high income. I'm a upper middle class person. I'm a professional person mm-hmm. and whatnot. There is the the story of the cop pulled me over while I was driving my BMW just because I'm black, driving while black. But th- that's kind of a, you know, a urban legend. I mean, it, I I don't know the uh, extent to which the imposition of the police presence. On the quality of life of African Americans, uh, very much penetrates into the middle, uh, upper middle class of the of the black community. I think it's mainly a phenomenon that uh, is seen in the working and lower classes uh, communities of African American uh, residents, and I think it's closely related to the problem of criminal participation and. Um, so on that is uh, that occasions the police presence in the first place. I mean, I, it, I, I, that that can be misinterpreted. What I just said as if I was justifying police brutality. And I no, no, I don't
0: I, mean I, that, I, I think you're I, saying trying, though, that the per- percentage of cases that come up in poor communities, whether or not they happen to be black or or Latino or yes, white, but
1: correct.
0: the police will be going more frequently to call in those parts of town.
1: That's exactly what I'm saying.
0: Race studies is something that has come under fire in recent months. Um, (laughs) The D'Angelo book, which I LOL'd while reading, uh, I've never seen something (laughs) so racist in my life, actually, in recent years, being called anti-racist. You know, speaking about George Wallace, that's like, you know, citing Wallace as somehow a civil rights figure (laughs) of importance. Because D'Angelo's book is everything, to me, it represents everything that's wrong with this left, leftist push to re nativize racism. There's this almost noble savage kind of move happening where instead of what was in the 70s, my best friend, friend is black kind of move, we're seeing, well, you're not worthy of speaking because of the color of your skin. Let's let, let Charles who's black speak. So D'Angelo's book basically takes all of racist discourse from history and flips it and says, if you're white, you just shut up and sit at the back of the room. And yeah. you, it's really one of those, do you laugh or do you cry, that this has been adopted by consultants, by some cities, some Well, these educators. books,
1: uh, you, you might've mentioned Ibram Kendi's, uh, how to be an anti-racist. I mean, these books have sat for, uh, many, many weeks on the bestsellers list at the New York Times and other places. Uh, they have been imbibed uh, by and, and uh, uh, you know become uh, uh, vital to the thinking of large numbers of white Americans. I, I, I think one has yeah. to explain that. But why, where, where does the hunger for this kind of, you call it racist, I would be inclined to agree. It essentializes whiteness. All white people are the same somehow. Uh, race becomes the center of everything. Uh, I agree. But why, why should whites uh, so eagerly embrace uh, so many whites so eagerly embrace uh, this?
0: To me, it is a a type of pseudo religiosity of the left that's pushed away (laughs) all forms of religion for decades. But their religion has now been fully cemented around this kind of confessional you talk about guilty (laughs) white driving well black this is guilt while being white you know so now people i saw that photo a woman kneeling to apologize for slavery i laughed out loud when i saw that it was on twitter i think why are people apologizing for something that we literally have nothing to do with none of us you me you know this is
1: well, this is the—they're supposedly inheriting some privilege unearned in virtue of the color of their skin, yeah. uh, and the fact that slavery was a racial institution, uh, so it, it somehow elevated whiteness. I guess an argument can be made: the denigration of the African, which was a necessary thing in uh, U.S. political culture, given that slavery was uh, a part of the package. When the country was founded, and yet the ideals of the founding emphasized liberty and the value of the individual, you have to then see the subject of the slave commerce as less than fully uh, human person in order to justify your uh, political uh, regime, along with your your economic, uh, you know, regime of enslavement. So, so. Uh, there's a pushing down of the black. And I guess that then is a kind of valorization or honoring of the white. And I think you look at the the assimilation dynamic over the course of a hundred years from let's say 1880 to 1980, where you've got wave after wave. I mean, the Irish were coming to tie in, the Slavs, the, the, the uh, uh, Jews, uh, you know, uh, you've got wave after wave, tens of millions of uh, immigrants coming to the country. And they are not, white when they arrive, but they become white in the fullness of time so by the time you get to the mid-20th century. And then, so this is a story about the construction of whiteness. I, I guess you have to live in in that kind of mindset in order to then be able to point to somebody walking on the streets of uh, New York City in 2020, who happens to be of, uh, you know, Caucasian ethnicity. and And you say of them, they are white, and you link them somehow to the the, the historical depredations of slavery to such an extent that they didn't feel need to, the need to apologize for for something. I don't know. It's a it's a very odd, it's a very odd way of thinking about society. I mean, these uh, these uh, intergenerational inheritances of responsibility and of guilt and of entitlement. A black person walking around the day who points to the suffering of distant slave ancestors and then turns to society and extends their hand and says, pay me. Pay me for, for what? Did I, I somehow inherited the debt? You didn't give 40 acres and a mule to my ancient slave ancestors. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon. I mean, it, I'll stop in a moment, Julian. Uh, most people, most progressives think the inheritance tax is perfectly justifiable. And they say to the wealthy people who insist that they should be able to convey across generations the benefits of their own life success keep your hands off of my wealth, I wanna give it to my son. That's what, uh, and they, they say to those people, no, no, uh, your claims of intergenerational entitlement are not absolute in a society such as we live in. And yet, the very logic of my ancestors were enslaved, you owe me depends upon a kind of intergenerational inheritance uh, uh, property right entitlement claim that's not so dissimilar to the person who owns a farm who wants to be able to leave it intact to their offspring and not have it broken up by estate taxation would make. That's a very good point. It's ironic. It's ironic.
0: No, it's true, because that argument's often made by people on the left. And um, uh, that is a contradiction in in that term. The events of this summer made me think about how, as a country, we are hyper-conscious of race and made to be so in large part because when you go to the university, especially since the late 80s, there's been a whole host of humanities studies to teach us about that. Now, this raises an issue, of course, because race does not exist amongst humans, and, and Darwin discusses this to great ridicule of his enemies at the time in The Origin of Species race had become a new thing in the early part of the 21st century when we learned well over 150 years ago that race does not exist amongst humans but here we are reinvoking race and why do you think that people are so keen to hold on to a, an identity as race on the left now this isn't george wallace anymore this is the neoliberal left and further afloat <sighs>
1: Yeah, I I don't know the answer to that question, Julian. Um, I I do affirm that the uh, developments in the universities would surely be an important part of the story that you'd want to tell here. These are ideas that we're talking about, after all. Uh, And the... um, transformation of uh, the humanities. I mean, I hear this from my colleagues. I am a social scientist, not a humanist myself, but I'm paying attention to what's going on in history, what's going on in literary studies, what's going on in the ethnic studies world, Uh, the um, uh, influence. And again, I speak now as an outsider to the humanities of uh, relativist and postmodernist kinds of thinking. And and the the kind of critical critical theory critical studies uh, dimension the deconstruction the exposing of the hidden hand of oppression and domination the uh, and the voices the the idea that uh, one one has to hear not only from dead white males uh, the anti-patriarchal and uh, anti-white supremacist you know. Uh, decolonizing the the you know these themes seem to resonate very powerfully uh, in uh, in the humanities and in some areas of the social sciences certainly in anthropology I think one would have to say maybe to a yeah. lesser degree sociology uh, so so things are going on and I I'm, I'm just a humble economist over here I I'm not a cultural historian it seems you need a big sweeping view mm-hmm. to to fully. Uh, to fully grasp what's happening,
0: one thing I am noticing in the last fifteen years, some of even my former students from New York and elsewhere, um, they are not, a f- they are not able to afford the lifestyle of their parents, and I do wonder if this has to do with the left lack of material power. Therefore, the surrogate to that is the only thing uh, that they can have for free, which is language. So. You call me as I tell you to call me. (laughs) You parrot my political diatribe, or else. Oh,
1: I like this. I like this. Um, I've thought similar things myself that you mentioned the statute debate. uh, And I I thought, these are the arguments of the weak. These are the arguments of the powerless. This is a tantrum that's being thrown here, that this is someone who actually can't control. They have no capital, and, and they have no real political power. They man no armies. They, they don't win majorities at the polls but they can throw a tantrum and and so they insist they insist on this or that piece of etiquette this or that affirmation of their of their view you know if if working class based unions still determine who was the Democratic nominee for president a Democratic Party nominee for president and if uh, the issues of um, I don't know control over corporate power, or uh, you know uh, the the nature of working conditions and whatnot, just the sharing of the surplus from a successful enterprise between uh, labor and capital. If those were the if those were the forefront issues, there'd be no room and no need for the mobilization of people's enthusiasms based on uh, their uh, on their identitarian uh, uh, associations. It's only in the absence. Of a movement, uh, as it were, this is ca- all caps movement, and by which I mean a serious political confrontation with the underlying structures of economic and political power. In the absence of a movement with all caps, we have a movement in lower case, or a set of movements in lower case, which are these uh, effusions of identity-fueled uh, uh, demands. They, they issue demands. There's an insistence. There's a, and it's a faux politics. It's not a resonant uh, politics. It invites patronization. You're being placated when the powers that be accede to your stature-removing demands. They are merely tamping down your tantrum. They're not really ceding any power.
0: You're listening to Savage Minds. If you like this and our other podcasts, as well as our articles and essays, please consider getting a paid subscription. Now, back to our show. It was very interesting to me this summer to see side by side the protests over George Floyd and then the what's called the Karen Incident in Central Park. And the reason why this struck me is because there was a great op-ed, and I can't remember his name, I think it was in the New York Post, where the writer <laughs> accused Chris Cooper, <laughs> I'm sorry, this cracked me up, of being the real Karen. He wrote, well, the real Karen here is Chris Cooper, because he's the one that goes into the park and is being all what the British would call jobs worth, about the rules. And, you know, she her behavior was atrocious, but he went out to set up and make her follow the rules. So you had sort of, a powerhead. Meanwhile, everyone was saying, Oh, but look at George Floyd. And a lot of us were like, What? Well, hey, this guy did not get the treatment of George Floyd. Um, do we know that's what her goal was? You know, this was, it was a very cheap assault from uh, the Amy Cooper side of it. But I found it quite interesting how the media was running over itself to make a parallel between that incident and George Floyd. There was no parallel to be made. In fact, it was all very media concocted, including Chris Cooper sending the information to his sister who was in Hollywood, who then had a larger Twitter population to feed it to, right?
1: I did not know that, but yeah, I see what you mean.
0: Yeah, I found it all very, wow, this is well done, bravo. You know, it was well orchestrated. And not that I think Amy Cooper, you know, um, behaved well at all. But there were all these issues coming up in feminist groups that i was in and they were like well if i'm a woman in a park and a guy starts coming up to me threatening to do something that i'm not going to like i'm going to freak out and you couldn't discuss that of course because where racism and sexism are standing next to each other the racism will trump the sexism in this discussion as i found out in facebook groups and The at the end of all the discussions with various women, you know, you just thought you just resigned yourself to shut up again the self censorship that goes on in this era where you're afraid to speak out because then someone will call you a Karen. (laughs) It's also, it's also tautological. But well, yeah,
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I, I chuckle here a little bit because, well, what was the offense? See, the offense was that this Black guy who just was out, as he's a birder. So this is already contra the stereotype. He's an African-American. He's out early in the morning. And right. he, he has his uh, uh field glasses. And he's a birder. And he's presumed to be a threat to this woman who invokes her racial authority. This is the narrative that right. uh, I'll call the cops on you. Uh, even though he is this innocent guy who's just out there watching birds. Now, what's the reality? Now, of all of the encounters that occur in New York City uh, across racial lines, how many of them are of that quality where Karen is uh, lording her presumed racial authority over a guy who's been profiled as a as a threat and is really just a, a you know, ascetic uh, a lover of nature. How many are, yeah. versus, versus, how many are like a mugger or a potential mugger or a miscreant menacing a person who's Black, who's Black, uh, yeah. ca- causing fear, justified fear, uh, and a concern uh, amongst a, a person who might be White who encounters them in Central Park. What's the relative number, the, the relative incidence of those two, Types of those two, uh, 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 you know, ideal types of of encounters between people. Well, the latter, the latter is more likely the case. Uh, so, so one of the reasons I'm trying now to answer your question about why we get caught up in the kind of uh, social media fueled uh, hysteria uh, around racial incidents, as we do, as the Chris Cooper incident was. So one of the answers I think is. It's a counterweight to the unspoken, but much more uh, overpoweringly empirically resonant reality,
0: <laughs> which is
1: the antisocial uh, and uncivil behavior of so many who are black in the urban spaces encountering white people. That's the unspoken part of this whole uh, of this whole thing, uh, and and one of my concerns about why we our obsession with race is that how long can the unspoken remain unspoken? That is, how long can you talk about white offenses against poor, innocent Black people who are being preyed upon or wrongly accused without also beginning in the fullness of time to talk about white people who are offended against by Blacks who are acting uncivilly? I mean, look at the robbery statistics. you know the, the the mugging the the prototypical mugging is not an innocent uh, black person being preyed upon by a white person. It's exactly the opposite, and there are many 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 tens of thousands of those events occurring in the United States on an annual basis. So beware be, beware racializing discourses about uh, about civil order and crime because uh, if you ticket Uh, If you take the covers off of what is supposed not to be spoken of, uh, you're going to get a very reactionary uh, kind of uh, situation.
0: Well, the New York Post piece on the Coopers, I rather like that they have the same name, uh, (laughs) dealt with the fact that it gave the backstory, something I did not know about. And I've lived in New York a long time, but it was about the birder culture and the ongoing war between birders and dog owners. I had no clue, but it's a thing. And he gives a very good, yeah, he gives a very good history about this. And then that's when he comes down to, well, Chris Cooper knew the dynamic as an avid birder and he took it upon himself to be the ultimate Amy. (laughs) I'll send you the, the, the article. It's extremely funny, very well done, but it, it made me think a lot about the dynamics of power at play especially since Chris Cooper you know two words of his mouth you're like this guy's definitely the last person to be on the front page because the police shot him um, not that it would never happen but he really either you could tell the man is highly educated and in the United States as in most countries of the world education is everything um, and that's what I feel like is missing from the black lives matter discussion' that's one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter has actually given a lecture at a think tank with uh, very strong links to the Department of Defense. But they, they've all um, been dealing with loads of donations, and where the money for their donations are going, no one seems to understand how this is actually going to make Black Lives Matter more. And th- these are very uh, serious um, questions that they should be answering too, because. Since the Black Lives Matter hashtag went, you know, viral in the summer, everyone from Microsoft to Apple to Google—they've been checking out uh, tens of millions of sure. dollars. I, I hope so.
1: Following that money, um, I, I do I, too. It's a brand; it has become a thing unto itself, and so then it can serve as this vehicle for, uh, you know, uh, the brand management of large uh, corporate entities. Uh, you know, you say Apple or Nike or. Uh, or whatever. I, I don't know what these corporations are doing, but I do hear uh, that they're doing quite a bit uh, by uh, funneling money. So then, what what happens to the money, and who, you know, who is uh, actually benefiting at the end of the day becomes an important uh, question. But but they do they didn't they stand in for something. They you know they, they are an idea as well as an organization.
0: Well, some of the uh, the money has also gone for the kind of training that D'Angelo offers. See, this is the problem is when your your race consciousness training begins and ends with, okay, whoever's white, you get to stand over there. Wait, that sounds to me like a lesson in racism, not in-
1: I agree with that, and this should be pushed back against. I don't understand why a participant in such a training can't object and demand that it be justified that you classify people- uh, preemptively in terms of their race. What do you mean by white? who you know where where do you get off in uh, a racial training uh, arrogating to yourself the uh, the right to to designate uh, people in this uh, in this crude kind of uh, binary categorization? It should be challenged.
0: yes, and 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 certainly, the way that we respond to uh, certain kinds of our culture is also caught up in stereotypes. like, I remember reading the biography, biography of Miles Davis and learning that he came from a very affluent family from, I believe, uh, Missouri, St. Louis. And his father was a dentist. And all of the myths surrounding jazz musicians were exploded with him right there. Uh, or the fact that, you know, the Russian poet Pushkin. The Russians, uh, I think when you start to study Pushkin, you find out that he has African heritage. But Russians don't run around saying our our African-Russian poet, right? And it's something that (laughs) is very part of the United States. It's become a bit part of Canadian academic culture as well. So you'll see the the line, you know, Canadian-African or Latino-Canadian and Arab-Canadian. And we've really fallen in love in Anglophone countries, especially with that line that divides this... Forced hybridity, yet go south of Texas and throughout all of Latin America, you have the Mestizaje, the Creole culture that's part and parcel. Maybe,
1: maybe uh, Julianne, excuse me for cutting in that. Maybe there's yeah. something too. You made a point about um, the identity uh, dimension getting elevated in the absence of the, of the economic power, you know, and, and so, or maybe it was I who made the point, but it's the the point about if unions are down, then uh, identity politics is up, because people basically uh, don't have a way of trying to press their claims. Um, but it strikes me that if nationalism is down, maybe identity politics is also to some degree up. I mean, you're pointing out this hyphenated phenomenon uh, you know, of a certain kind of Canadian, a certain kind of American, where you have the Hispanic or the Latino, or you have the Black or the of color, you know there's this kind of emphasis on identity, and it strikes me that the the phenomenon of nationalism—I mean, American Canadianness—asserting the nation's interests, kind of transcending the particularisms in, on behalf of the corporate or collective enterprise, which is the nation. And it may be that the nation has blood on, it ha- on its hands, it and it may be that the nation, you know, fought wars in, in the case of the United States that it ought not to have fought, or is is uh, understood through the lens of a 1619 project. That's the thing at the New York Times as right. being rooted in, you know, dripping in the kind of guilt, the, the association with slavery and whatnot. It may be that the nation becomes harder to advocate for. And the harder it is, uh, maybe that you elect a demagogue, that Donald Trump is president. And it becomes hard to be an American in an unselfconscious way. It may be that as the. Power of national idea goes down, then the space created for a flourishing of subnational identities uh, uh, comes into comes into being. Something like that.
0: Well, it's interesting because you you know the funny part about watching the end of this presidential race, I, I was quite surprised when two days ago I flipped on the internet to Fox News and found their coverage more rational and objective than like CNN or MSNBC. And I was a bit flipped out and I wrote this on my Facebook wall and few people I know on the left said, yeah, I've been following them since the last presidential election because their coverage was saner. And it was remarkably saner, which surprised me. I understand why this guy is liked by people, even if I don't agree with most of the things he says, yes. he's, he's very brazen in how he speaks. He's, he speaks popular jargon. He yeah. does not try to tidy it up and sound academic at all. And uh, people like that. Aside from the fact that he'll, he, on the one, in one minute, he's making a horrible imitation of a Chinese <laughs> accent. And the next may thing, I like my Latino friends. And it sounds horrible, <laughs> right? But it resonates with people. So meanwhile, uh, I, I want to call MSPC is shocked that Latino voters have uh, favored him in Florida. And I'm thinking, well, of course they have. Because for the last I, more than four years, all you've done is shame people that like him. Of course the I, exit polls aren't going to resonate with what's really happening because people are. I, I agree
1: with this. I agree with this. I just want to say I, I interviewed a man, John Shields is his name, at my podcast, The Glenn Show. I interviewed oh. uh, John Shields. He's a political science professor at uh, Claremont McKenna uh-huh. uh, College in Southern California. Uh, his book is called Trump's Democrats, and it's based on uh, ethnography. He and his wife interviewed uh, voters in uh, three towns, one in industrial or post-industrial town in Iowa, one in Appalachia, and one in, uh, just outside of Providence, Rhode Island here uh, on the East Coast. They're all working class white enclaves. And they all went for Obama twice heavily. Uh, one of them, in fact, had been going for Democrats for president since Franklin Roosevelt or something. I mean, you know, they're very, very traditional democratic constituencies, but they went for Trump. And he wanted to understand why, so he goes out and he talks to them. And the bottom line is, he's one of us. He's like one of us. Okay, He, okay. he, he is uh, plain spoken. Uh, he, he is a, <coughs> a tough guy. Uh, He fights back. Uh, There there was a kind of uh, masculine or kind of macho dimension to it. He talks about honor culture. Anyway, he went to three working class white uh, counties in America. One in Iowa, an industrial town, heavily unionized, but in decline because of deindustrialization. One in Appalachia, very poor, uh, very white, very insular uh, kind of political culture there. And one on the East Coast uh, Johnston, Rhode Island, just outside of Providence, uh, where there is also a tradition of machine politics, kind of uh, Irish, uh, Italian, ethnic Democrat machine uh, politics. And uh, these are all counties that went heavily uh, for Democrats for many, many years and voted for Obama twice, but then flipped and voted for Trump in 2016. He wanted to try to understand why. And the bottom line on that was merely to affirm something that you had been saying about finding uh, it explicable as you listen to Trump speak about why it is that people might appeal to him, that he was plain spoken. He came across as one of them. He he uh, in, embodied certain kinds of masculine virtues that, of course, we sophisticated elites know is patriarchal, and we would never you know, affirm the, the attractiveness of them. But for maybe this is a toughness, this is a, of, you know, giving as good as you get. This is, a, uh, you know, a kind of swagger, you know, this this kind of thing. So that anyway, uh, I just wanted to add that to our discussion.
0: During lockdown, I remember seeing this uh, interview with Pelosi standing in front of a refrigerator that costs, I'm sure, at least $15,000. Oh, yeah. Eating uh, frozen ice cream that probably costs $5 yeah. each. You know, we're talking, she does not yeah. speak to the people like this. And that's where Trump wins. He can, he can even be in a Rolls Royce. The way he speaks gets right to the heart of the issue. And, it, and regardless of his wealth, regardless of how many taxes he did or did not pay, uh, he resonates with people who are struggling. We're, you know, we're talking via Zoom, uh, lockdown, world travel is stalled. And there's a lot of social commentary the last decade about how social media is distancing us but we're now being distanced by force of this virus. Now I have to wonder if the focus on race, on gender identity and all these identities, a move away from talking about poverty, a class issues that it seems the Republicans are heading towards, is being exacerbated by online life. We spoke briefly about how millennials very likely are gonna be facing a lifetime of struggling to get work in the field they studied. Uh, I think very soon we'll be seeing more and more people who opt out of going to university for fear of not being able to get out of student debt. So I'm, I'm wondering how you view the use of let's say, social media, the internet, and how this contributes to negatively or positively discussions about race in America, and identity as a race, you know, this kind of fetish that's happening uh, where everyone is now being told they have to stand up for X identity, where...
1: I can say for my own practice that I'm a university professor, I teach, I give lectures, uh, I travel and give speeches, uh, that um, I do feel something very fundamental is happening. Uh, so my university is now Every class must be available for remote uh, participation. And no instructor is required to be present on campus to offer the class. There is a campus. Some students are there. Some are not. Some professors are coming on the campus and with appropriate safety measures and distancing and masking and testing are resuming in-person interaction with students. But if I didn't want to go to my office, I would not be required to go to my office and I, I would do all of my teaching in this way. And it strikes me that what that does as it has become now a widespread practice is it separates the physical location of the campus and the facilities there from the intellectual offerings of uh, the lectures and instruction and the teaching and and the so on. And I don't see how once that genie is out of the bottle, if if we are... Uh, normalizing uh, that that practice that doesn't completely transform the higher education industry and make it possible for example for a person like myself to offer my classes to uh, a million people uh and and not just uh, to uh, 200 who can fit inside of an auditorium if a million people were to want to subscribe to the services that I, I would offer, and if I were able to give lectures or lead people through the reading of a certain literature or teach them certain basic uh, techniques and ways of thinking and whatnot, or uh, you know, with with people uh, in the tens and tens of thousands who would uh, decide to subscribe to my platform and uh, pay the fees necessary to have access to my content. Uh, I could uh, I could be a force unto myself. I don't mean to personalize this. I mean, any prominent and effective communicator uh, with mastery over material that was of interest to a wide audience would be able to place themselves in the position of crowding out um, uh, the uh, a local provider of the same kind of intellectual content uh, at a physical campus somewhere. I don't know why people would subscribe. I mean, it's a little bit like, If the only opera that you could hear performed, you would have to be present in an opera house to hear it. Then uh, there would be opera lovers. uh, And the opera houses of great quality would be overflowing with subscribers, and they'd have a full audience. But uh, they are the only people who would actually be hearing the opera. Once it becomes possible to reproduce the performance of the opera on a high fidelity, uh electronic system so that people can buy cds or they can stream the content or whatever suddenly the audience for opera becomes uh much much greater than the uh the aficionado who subscribes to uh the uh to the city's uh, opera house uh and it becomes something that can be indulged by people uh in the uh, 10 or 100 times the numbers that would be you could fit into opera houses and it feels to me a bit like uh what the the zoom uh you know conveyed kind of virtual uh, the advent of that as as a way to conduct the business of the university it feels to me a little bit like it's opening up uh to uh, the possibility of a much wider uh, competitive uh, climate we be